This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, many of us have heard the names of famous economists like Alan Greenspan, Janet Yellen, Paul Krugman, and Joseph Stiglitz. But around 50 years ago, few people paid attention to economists. It wasn't until after the post-World War II boom started to fade that these financial experts started to gain influence in policymaking in this country. They then pushed the idea that the markets could have a greater impact in delivering steady growth and were key to the increase of power and wealth among corporations, as opposed to empowering workers through unions or public investment. A new book looks at some of the most influential economists, experts of the time, and what they got right and what they got wrong. The book is The Economist Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. It was written by Binyamin Applebaum, who writes about business and economics for the New York Times editorial page. Applebaum was previously the Times Washington correspondent covering economic policy, including the 2008 financial crisis, and he joins us here in our studio. And you, as you are a Penn grad, great to have you back on campus for a while. Great to be back on campus. I guess let, let's start with that period of time post-World War II, moving up to the 60s. And how was it that we started to see economists start to have more of an influence? Yeah, so, you know, the very idea of a discipline called macroeconomics, the idea that you could sort of take stock of the entire economy, measure it, and manage it, is really a product of the Great Depression. Uh, when the United States enters the Great Depression, the government literally has no idea how large the American economy is. The Senate hires an economist to figure it out, and he comes back a couple years later and says, well, it used to be this big, and now it's a lot smaller, and that's sort of the beginning of, of measuring the economy. That's what we come to call GDP, gross domestic product. Uh, and and once you can measure it, then it makes sense to start thinking about managing it. And so economists are gradually engaged in that business of managing it. And for several decades there, uh, there's this really strong idea that, that management should be aggressive, that the government should be extremely involved in setting prices for airline tickets, in uh, preventing companies from getting too large, in, in managing the rights of workers, uh, in managing the ups and downs of the economy. And, and during those mid-century years, that's the tenor of, of economic policy. To kind of get an idea of what was going on at the time, you relate a story about Paul Vol Volcker in his early days uh, at the New York Fed. Yeah, so economists are not held in particularly high regard in those early years. And Volcker is an amazing example of this. His first job at the Fed in the early 1950s was basically as a human calculator. His job was to do the numbers that the people who made decisions needed and used. But the, the people who actually ran the Fed were uh, from the financial industry. One was an Iowa hog farmer to represent agricultural interests. There were no economists on the board. And Volcker comes home one night and says to his wife, hey, I, I don't see myself having a career at the Fed. There's no opportunities here for an economist. And that was true in the early 1950s. The head of the Fed told the visitor that he kept the economists in the basement because they asked good questions, but they didn't know their own limitations. Uh, of course, by the end of the 1970s, Volcker is running the place. But you talk about uh, the fact that economists were, to a degree, persuading political leaders to have more influence during this period of time. How so? So there's a couple of ways that that happens. The first is that the government is getting increasingly complex and economists are brought in to help rationalize and manage the business of government. That's one way that they kind of get in the door. But then they begin to influence the aims of policy as well, initially by arguing that they can make the economy work better. And then, you know, by the late 1960s and early 1970s, economic growth is beginning to falter. 
back then the bogeyman was Japan rather than China, but there's right. still this sense among Americans that we're falling behind, that other countries are doing better. Uh, and in this atmosphere of uncertainty, economists emerge and say, we can fix this. We know how to run the economy better. We can return America to prosperity. Mm -hmm. And that's a very powerful and appealing message. And policymakers really begin to, to take their advice to heart. So was the goal all along during that early period of time to be able to grow the economy, but also to spread the wealth so that everybody was able to to benefit from that growth that we were going to see in, in the periods of the 60s and 70s and beyond. During the mid-century, there's a broadly shared assumption that one important role of government is to distribute opportunity and to distribute prosperity to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to share in the economic gains. Uh, and and that comes to be seen by economists and ultimately by policymakers as part of the problem. Uh, economists argue that when you are focusing on redistribution and equality, you are limiting growth. Uh, you're getting in the way of maximum growth and that policy should turn away from that concern for distribution and focus primarily on maximizing growth. Just get the water rising and all the boats will go up. And if some people do much better than others, so be it. That's not a big problem. But as we've seen over the last couple of decades, that hasn't been the way that it is played out in many cases. And we have this economic divide here in, in the country right now. Yeah, my book is mostly about the period from the late 60s through 2008, what I call the economist's hour, which is the period in which these economists are really dominant uh, in shaping the course of public policy. And during that period, they really do succeed uh, in pushing government to focus on growth. And the very clear consequence is that inequality explodes. There are lots of reasons for the growth of inequality. Economists are by no means solely responsible. But this decision to stop trying to prevent inequality, to stop taking inequality seriously as a public policy problem, is a really important contributing factor. But without some of those moves, as you kind of lay out in the book, and, and obviously the influence of, of some of the economists uh, of the time, uh, what do you think would have been the path? We, would we have not had as, as large a discrepancy as we have right now? I'll give you a really simple comparison. Uh, if you look at the American economy and the French economy, most Americans take pride in the fact that America has grown more quickly than France. We see it as a validation of our economic model. But if you remove the top 1% of the population in both countries, what you find is that for the 99%, for the vast majority of Frenchmen and the vast majority of Americans, economic uh, income growth has been much faster in France. So it is easy to imagine a world in which you had more of a focus on distribution uh, and less of a focus on the total size of the pie, and a lot more people ended up with larger pieces. Has that been the case and you mentioned France, but has that been the case in in other countries as well, where you've seen that that type of growth that that has allowed some level of uh, of of equality in the in countries? The distribution of income in the United States is the most unequal of any developed nation, unless you want to count places like Chile and Mexico. Uh, which are at an earlier stage of development and have even more extreme inequality. But among sort of established developed nations, there's no other nation that has the extremes of inequality that we see in the United States. But it wasn't just, from what you talk about, it wasn't just the fact that you had economists that would be at the Federal Reserve. You had economists that were in other areas of the government that were showing their influence in a variety of different sectors around the, the U.S. government. And that's really important because this is not uh, primarily, I think, even a story of, you know, the fact that economists took over the Federal Reserve and managed monetary policy in a particular way or that they flattened out the tax code. 
uh, economists, their influence was really pervasive in government. And one really striking example of this is the role of economists in reshaping uh, federal regulation, uh, deregulating industries like transportation, communications, uh, also their role in reshaping antitrust policy, which uh, was for a long time used uh, for a variety of purposes uh, to prevent large corporations from concentrating power, but in the hands of economists was reinterpreted as basically being solely about keeping consumer prices as low as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that shift ultimately came at the expense of workers. It came at the expense of, I think, democracy to some extent. Uh, and so, you know, these broader goals were set aside during this period. And and so we see economists reshaping policy uh, in lots of small ways, as well as in the examples that get the most attention. The book is The Economist Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. Binya Applebaum is the author of the book uh, of the New York Times. The period of the 70s as a whole, you talk about how that period of time had such a big influence on on where this has all headed when you think about all of the economic issues that went on, but also the leadership that was going on in the country as well. The 70s, like the 30s, were a period in which people lost faith in an old way of managing the economy and were groping around for new answers. Uh, There's a woman named Juanita Kreps who was the Secretary of Commerce in the Carter administration and had also been a professor of economics at Duke University. And in the late 1970s, she steps down from that job, from the Carter administration, because she says that she's lost faith in its ability to manage the economy. And she also steps down as a professor at Duke University because she says that she doesn't know what to teach her students anymore. And that really encapsulates, you know, the loss of faith uh, that the economics profession had experienced in those years, the sense that their understanding of the economy was fundamentally flawed, that their approach to policy was not working. Uh, there was this real search for new answers, and it's in that vacuum uh, that this new approach to policy really emerges. This is also the story, as we mentioned before, uh, of several economists who uh, were very well known during this period of time, one being Milton Friedman. If you can, take us into the influence that Friedman had during this period of time and how he ends up playing a role in in where we have kind of went over that 20 to 30 year period. Friedman's a remarkable figure. I I think, you know, he had more influence on American life than any other economist, certainly in the 20th century. Uh, I don't think there are too many people ahead of him on the list of uh, Americans in terms of greatest influence. He really succeeded in fundamentally affecting a revolution in our approach to economic policy. He was a guy, you know, he was a child of the Great Depression, but unlike many of the people of his generation, he came out of it feeling that there was too much government. He came out of it with the, you know, sort of counterintuitive conclusion that that the problem had been that government was meddling too much in the economy and that the solution to most of our economic policy problems was for government to draw back and do less uh, and allow markets to sort things out. It's really fascinating, you know, the first place where he has a really profound influence on government is that he plays a central role in convincing the Nixon administration to end military conscription. Uh, People think of that as as something that happens during the Vietnam War, and of course it does, Uh, but it was driven in large part by Friedman and other economists demonstrating that it was feasible to pay soldiers to serve in the military rather than drafting them, to pay market rates. So, you know, Sergeant Elvis Presley could go off and pursue a singing career, and that's better for everyone, and someone else would uh, be recruited to serve in his place. That's a huge shift 
uh, in military policy, but it also embodied a lot of what Friedman thought needed to happen across government. You were replacing a model in which government decided who should serve with a model in which the market essentially decided by allowing people to decide if they wanted that job. Uh, in the process, you were making the military into another line of business. Uh, which had the effect, among other things, of making it easier for us to stay at war because, you know, people feel like it's not their problem and the people who are fighting chose to do it. It is interesting, just using that example uh, of how there are so many elements of our culture and, and to a degree our economy that were impacted by some of these changes that went on during during this period of time. It really is wide-ranging. I mean, Friedman was, for example, one of the progenitors of the charter school movement. Right. Uh, he's the guy who invented the earned income tax credit, which sort of transformed the way that we approach uh, low-income taxation. Uh, you know, he was an early advocate for drug legalization. Uh, you know, his his outlook on the world really was profoundly influential, not to mention getting rid of the gold standard or reducing taxation of wealthy individuals or allowing big business to flourish. Uh, you know, a lot of things that have broadly reshaped uh, not just the American economy, but, but our lives as how, Americans. How much influence then did the economists have on... Maybe not so much the political process, but the political parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party over this period of time as well. I think of the economists as coming to serve as sort of the referees of what was possible in policy. So what, what you see happening is that uh, the economists are installed as the arbiters. Their, their judgments about what is uh, you know, going to cost the government money and how much money it will cost or what is going to benefit consumers come to bound the political process in a way that previously hadn't been true. So the White House acquires its own economists. Congress creates a congressional budget office staffed with its own economists. Uh, you know, when, when two companies go to court to fight out an antitrust dispute, they both bring their own teams of economists. Right. So you know, everything is being essentially uh, you know, arbitrated through the lens of economics, uh, and you need an economist to do it. Uh, and so that begins to profoundly influence our politics. Uh, and one important respect in which it does so is that you see a real convergence on economic policy. The difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party by the end of the 20th century on questions of economic policy yeah. has gotten awfully small. Yeah. And tax policy and, and tax cuts is another area where it, it has changed a, a good bit as well. Absolutely. You go from a top rate in the 90s uh, yeah. in the mid-century to basically two political parties fighting over whether the right number is 33% or 37%. Arthur Laffer is another person that, that you talk about, and a lot of people will know him from the Laffer curve. Uh, give us a sense of the impact that he had. He's another extremely colorful character. Uh, people may think of economists as sort of dry and, and uh, you know, focused on numbers, but some of them were quite colorful personally, and Laffer is a great example of that. You know, another small guy, vivacious, you know, life of the party type uh, who had this big idea, basically, uh, the Laffer curve, which showed that if you raise tax rates too high, you start collecting less money. Uh, he wasn't quite sure where too high was, but he was convinced that America was in that range. Uh, and so he argued quite effectively during the 1970s and into the 1980s for reductions in the top tax rate. Uh, he convinced Republicans, uh, he and his colleagues, really, a guy named Jude Winiski at the Wall Street Journal was also hugely influential in, in marketing these ideas. Uh, but they convinced Republicans in particular to embrace the idea that tax cuts should be the centerpiece of conservative fiscal policy. An earlier generation had really emphasized balanced budgets as the absolutely essential goal of policy. And Laffer comes in and says, no, uh, what you want to do is cut taxes as low as possible. 
Binya Applebaum is our guest. He is the author of the book, The Economist Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So as the country is is kind of going through its period of time in the 60s and the division that we had, we have this this movement going on with economists and the influence that they were able to to grow as we go from the 70s into the 80s, how is that changing as the country is changing as well? I think one of the really interesting things about this period is that the sort of the counterculture reaction against uh, government, against big business, against institutions, which is such a familiar part of the story of the 60s and the 70s, really had an important uh, you know, uh, countershock that doesn't get talked about as much, which is that big business uh, and its proponents really began to see a need to respond, to make an affirmative case for the importance of capitalism. Mm-hmm. They were very explicit about this. You know, there's a famous memo uh, that one of, that the Chamber of Commerce put out in the early 70s that said basically, you know, we spend tens of millions of dollars every year advertising Wheaties and Fords and Hanes and none advertising capitalism. And so they explicitly begin to promote capitalism as, as a good thing. Uh, and to organize around it and to train judges to defend it and to train politicians to defend it. And so what you really see moving into the 80s is this new self-confident, assertive form of uh, free market advocacy, Mm -hmm. uh, pushing back against what they saw as unfair attacks uh, from the left and to a lesser extent from the, you know, socially conservative right and saying basically this is America. This is we are a free market, free enterprise country. That is the essence of our civilization. But but does that even take a, a, another step further when you move into the 90s and you think of uh, of the true Wall Street days uh, of the control of Wall Street on so many different avenues uh, across the United States? One important thing that happens uh, when the Berlin Wall falls and, and the Soviet Union and communism fade out of existence as a competitive, as a competitor to capitalism, uh, is that people look around and say basically, hey, we've we've run this natural experiment. Capitalism won. It's obviously the better system. And and there's a doubling down on capitalism. George Will, the conservative columnist, has this line where he writes that the Cold War is over and the University of Chicago has won. Well, <laughs> historically, that was wrong. The way that we won the Cold War was by demonstrating that our system of government was better at providing for everyone. Right. There was a really conscious effort during the mid-century to make sure that middle class and lower middle class and working class Americans were all benefiting from capitalism. But once you win the Cold War, a lot of that gets discarded. There's this real purification of the faith in capitalism embodied by people like Alan Greenspan, who basically take the view that markets should be left to their own devices. Uh, and so what you get in from the 90s and into the 2000s uh, is just, I mean, capitalism essentially becomes a monopolist. And like a lot of monopolists, it's fat and happy and not interested in talking about its shortcomings. How, how different was the end goal with Mr. Greenspan in comparison to some of these these other gentlemen, when you think about the influence that he really is kind of given and, and noted for in the history uh, of U.S. economic policy. I mean, if you think about Paul Volcker sitting in his cubicle in the 50s, you know, convinced that there was no future for him at the Fed, uh, and you fast forward to Alan Greenspan, essentially you know, the most powerful man in Washington during his tenure there, managing the American economy more or less by fiat. That's a remarkable transformation. You know, 
to have a doctorate in economics, to never have been elected to anything, and to be installed as, you know, first among equals as a policymaker, uh, really highlights how far economists had come. And there was, I mean, people who uh, are too young to remember it, it can be difficult to describe to them, but there was this religious faith in Greenspan. He was treated as an object of veneration. People took his pronouncements on on matters of public policy as as gospel. Uh, and it gave him enormous power, much of it unearned and unwarranted, to, to reshape economic policy uh, in the service of ideas that he considered important. So how do you think then we stand today with the fact that for the first time in, I, I can't remember how long, you have an economist, or you should say you have somebody running the Federal Reserve who is not an economist. And Jay Powell in that job is, you know, obviously drawing a lot of attention right now. 2008 was a real inflection point. I think uh, the crisis uh, in financial markets and and the recession in the economy really uh, gave people uh, a moment of pause to step back and say, listen, once again, as in the 30s and 70s, what we're doing is not working. We need to think about new approaches. We need to reconsider uh, where we're going. Uh, some of the consequences have not been good. There's this resurgence of, you know, what I kind of think of as as turtle shell nationalism, where you crawl up in a ball and and hope everyone else goes away. Uh, and and some of it, I think, is is more productive and hopefully moving us in a direction that will be better for us. But yeah, you get things like Jay Powell, who is not an economist, now installed atop the Fed, which is the first time since the 70s that the chairman of the Fed has not been an economist. Yeah. I think it's reflective of this moment that we're in where people are no longer sure that having an economist atop the Fed is the best idea. Is it safe to say then when you look back at some of the gentlemen who played a role, and obviously you note in the book, that their goals were obviously very noteworthy and, and hopefully uh, going to lead the United States economy to, to greatness, but that maybe to a degree they just went maybe a step or two too far? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is the story of a revolution. And like many revolutions, it went too far. I don't know if I'd limit it to a step or two in every area. Right. I think there's areas in which it went quite a bit further than that. But they were dealing with real problems. There were real failures in our management of economic policy. And they succeeded in addressing many of those problems. There were huge benefits uh, to this turn toward markets. The fact that we all fly cheaply all the time is a direct result of the deregulation of commercial aviation, to take just one prominent example. Uh, but it went too far. And it went too far... Uh, because, you know, as is often the case with this type of revolution, uh, the ideas sort of overrode the nuances. And we were left with a purified form of these ideas that, that didn't account for their shortcomings. But how much do you believe that, that some of these elements that were set in stone back in the 60s and 70s will continue to play a role of some kind, even if we move forward the next 20 or 30 years? I think there's no question that the ideas that these economists taught to our policymakers uh, are going to continue to influence public policy for the foreseeable future. The work of creating new paradigms, of creating new models of public policy uh, is just getting started. And and it takes time. It takes a generation uh, for people to to learn new lessons and new approaches. And so, you know, Milton Friedman's legacy is going to be with us for a long time. Great having you here on the show. Welcome back to Penn again, and thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much. The book is The Economist Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. It was written by Benjamin Applebaum, who writes about business and economics for the New York Times editorial page. 
Applebaum was previously the Times Washington correspondent covering economic policy, including the 2008 financial crisis. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.